You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The controversial order by a federal judge to appoint a special master to review documents seized from former President Donald Trump's Florida home has been roundly criticized by legal experts, even by former Attorney General Bill Barr on Fox News. The opinion, I think, was wrong, and I think the government should appeal it. Uh, It's deeply flawed in a number of ways. I don't think the appointment of a special uh, master is going to hold up. And the Justice Department has decided to appeal Judge Aileen Cannon's order, taking a legal sledgehammer to her ruling. Joining me is national security law expert and former federal prosecutor Jimmy Garule, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. Jimmy, let's start with the judge's order. I frankly thought that Trump's motion for a special master was the longest of long shots. What was your reaction to the ruling? Well, I was surprised by the decision. And then when I read the decision, I was even more concerned by the lack of really thoughtful legal reasoning. It's a deeply flawed ruling and opinion. And I would say this as a law professor, had this been the quality product that one of my students had submitted for a grade, uh, I'm not sure that it would have received a passing grade. It's that poorly written. Is the judge's decision that the special master can review the documents for executive privilege as well as attorney-client privilege especially troubling? The problem is that there's no legal authority whatsoever for the proposition that a former president of the United States may properly invoke executive privilege. And more so, it's problematic because executive privilege has been raised in the context of whether or not Congress, the legislature, can access presidential documents, not whether the executive branch itself 
can access such documents. And that's the case here. He's claiming that there's an executive privilege not only for former presidents, but that the executive privilege further bans the executive branch of the government from accessing certain documents involving communications with the president. And there's no authority for that proposition whatsoever. You said this decision was deeply flawed. What's the most flawed part of it? I think there's two aspects to it. And by the way, Judge Cannon admits that this is an open issue, does not cite any authority for the proposition that executive privilege applies here. In fact, the one case that she cites, which is Trump versus Thompson, which involves the January 6th committee, a decision by the Supreme Court decided earlier this year, that involved the legislative branch. And again, the January 6th committee that was seeking documents from President Trump. And she quotes from Justice Kavanaugh. But again, that quote involves a very different context of the legislative branch seeking to obtain executive records. But secondarily, the other problem with the ruling is that she grants a restraining order on the Department of Justice, the FBI, from continuing to investigate the matter while these 11,000 documents are being reviewed by the special master. And the legal standard for an injunction is first and foremost, number one, a substantial likelihood of success on the merits. And then she finds that there is a substantial likelihood of success on the merits. But the merits here involve whether the executive privilege applies to a former president with respect to requests from the executive branch. That's an open question. How can there be a substantial likelihood of success that there's this executive privilege that applies here when there's no authority to support it whatsoever? So that just is an absurd conclusion. And certainly, undermines and is going to hamper DOJ's investigation. Is it unheard of for a district judge to enjoin a federal criminal investigation? I'm unaware of any precedent. If there is precedent, it is extremely, extremely rare for the judiciary to intervene in an executive branch criminal investigation and order that that investigation be halted. So this, in my opinion, is an unprecedented ruling by the court. The judge can set out limits, uh, I take it, but how long do you think it would take for a special master to go through these documents? It's complicated because, you know, that's just simply the, the, the first the, the first effort here. So, I mean, so the special master is going to take some time. I think with respect to the attorney-client privilege documents, I think that, that the, the special master should be able to go through these 11,000 documents. In, in a reasonable period of time, but I mean, that, that it, it could take months. I mean, it's not inconceivable. This process could take months. On the executive privilege issue, that one is just confounding, because how is a special master to determine whether something falls within the executive privilege when it's never been established by, by any court that there is such an executive privilege? So this is just going to be a lot of subjective, you know, second-guessing speculation by the special master. And then let's assume that the special master decides that certain documents do, in fact, are privileged under the executive privilege, then what's going to happen? Then I think the DOJ would challenge that 
ruling or those rulings conceivably, and that could go up to the Court of Appeals, and that could go up to the, the Supreme Court. And so this is going to be just protracted and protracted delay and delay, which of course benefits former President Trump. Did her ruling carve out a special exception to the normal legal process for the former president, it's putting him in the special category of one, in contrast yeah. to the Justice yeah. Department saying yeah. over and over again that we're going to treat yeah. him just like yeah. any other person? Yeah, the, the, the Judge Cannon seemed to place a, a, a great deal of emphasis on the second requirement for uh, an injunction, and that is uh, harm irreparable injury. And so here, Judge Cannon found that there would be irreparable injury if a special master is not selected to review these documents, because if ultimately DOJ's investigation results in an indictment, that indictment would damage the reputation of the president. Well, guess what? You know, surprise, surprise, every indictment damages the reputation of the defendant. So there's nothing unique here. And so for the court to place this this emphasis on the reputation of the former president being damaged by a criminal investigation, being damaged by a um, indictment, if an indictment is in fact returned, that happens in every single case. And so it seems to me that former President Trump is being treated differently by this court than defendants in, in, in virtually every other case. They're certainly not afforded a special master to review the evidence that was seized pursuant to a lawfully issued search warrant and executed by, by law enforcement officers. And also the FBI already went through the documents and set aside wow. attorney-client privilege documents. Well, that's that's really interesting, too, because with respect to the injunction, it should be underscored that this was not never requested by the plaintiffs in their in their initial motion for a special master. They only requested that that the FBI not be permitted to review the documents. And of course, because that motion was filed so late after the execution of the search warrant, it was too late because the FBI had time to view all of the records that were seized. And so, in essence, the, the court is affording the plaintiffs something that they did not request in their initial pleadings and that neither party was permitted to brief and litigate and argue before, before the court. Can this hurt the FBI's investigation besides just delaying it? Well, it, it can it can hurt it in, in a couple of ways. Certainly, delay and the delay, you know, conceivably could be multiple months, you know, even a, even a year or longer. And then the problem becomes: is this going to run up against the the 2024 presidential election? You know, assuming that former President Trump is the Republican candidate, presidential candidate, in which case, based on DOJ policies and procedures, it may be too close to the presidential election where the uh, FBI or DOJ may say, well, we just can't continue the investigation. We cannot return an indictment, you know, two months, three months before the 2024 election. And then, of course, you know, taking it, you know, speculating, you know, further, if uh, former President Trump was was reelected to the presidency, then I suspect that uh, that this investigation would be halted by the Department of Justice, the, the, the Trump Department of Justice uh, immediately uh, the same day that he 
be sworn in as, as president. So it can certainly hurt the FBI investigation be, beyond simply the delay. And then one additional issue, if the special master concludes that certain documents fall within either the attorney-client privilege or the executive privilege, then the FBI will not be permitted to use those documents as evidence to prove whether or not the, uh, the former president violated federal law. The Justice Department has filed notice that it's going to appeal the judge's order, but it's also asking the judge for an emergency stay. Tell us about that. The Department of Justice is seeking a partial stay, focusing on two important aspects of the court's earlier ruling. First, the part of the court's ruling that enjoined the Department of Justice from using classified documents that were seized at Mar-a-Lago in their criminal investigation. The Department of Justice wants to be able to use the classified documents not only for the purpose of determining any damage to national security, but also for purposes of their criminal investigation, which DOJ states that these two issues are inextricably linked and they can't be separated, as Judge Cannon had previously ordered. She stated that the Department of Justice was prohibited from using any of the documents seized at Mar-a-Lago, including the classified documents for purposes of the criminal investigation, but at the same time, they could use those documents to assess the damage to national security as a result of their mishandling. And so this was kind of a very narrow focus. And I think the point here is that they're hoping, and I think their arguments are very persuasive and compelling, that they can get the court to reconsider its previous ruling on these narrow issues and avoid kind of a long protracted you know, appeal with respect to these issues. Do you think the Justice Department has a good chance on its appeal to the 11th Circuit, even though it's considered the second most conservative circuit in the country with six out of 11 judges, Trump appointees? I do. So first, DOJ is arguing that the court's ruling on September 5th is going to result in irreparable harm to national security. And historically, the courts have been very deferential to the executive branch on determinations related to national security. You know, why? Because the executive branch is in a much better position to evaluate and assess any potential threats to national security, certainly much more than the courts. You know, the courts don't have the information, the evidence before the court to make that determination. So this claim by DOJ that the court's order is going to result in irreparable damage to national security, I think that any court, including the 11th Circuit, including the Supreme Court, should be very deferential to DOJ's determination on national security grounds. Finally, Jimmy, as a national security expert, what are your concerns about the mishandling of these classified documents? Over 100 classified documents were seized by the FBI during the search, and dozens of those were classified as top secret documents, documents that if obtained by our adversaries could result in severe damage to national security. So the fact that former President Trump literally had dozens and dozens of these top secret documents at his Mar-a-Lago residence that were not properly stored, that 
he did not have proper authority to retain is not only shocking and stunning, but again, it raises serious concerns regarding the jeopardy, national security jeopardy, that Trump's reckless actions have placed the United States. Thanks, Jimmy. That's Jimmy Garule of Notre Dame Law School. Remember the build the wall chants that rang out at Trump rallies? Well, thousands of Trump supporters gave more than $15 million to a nonprofit that promised to build that wall on the southern border. But Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg says the We Build the Wall group was a scam and that former Trump strategist Steve Bannon was the architect of it. It is a crime to profit off the backs of donors by making false pretenses. Bannon was charged with money laundering, fraud and conspiracy. If those charges sound familiar, it's because Bannon faced similar federal charges in 2020, but he never went to trial because of a last minute pardon from former President Donald Trump. Here's New York Attorney General Letitia James. Mr. Bannon lied to ordinary citizens about this project. He diverted their hard earned money. He preyed upon the emotions of New Yorkers and Americans. And then when Mr. Bannon was held accountable for his criminal actions, the former president pardoned him. After pleading not guilty to the charges, Bannon left the courthouse making his familiar claim that the charges were politically motivated. We're not going to back down and they will not be able to shut me up. And I'm going to stay and fight this. My guest is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter and English. Bob, tell us about the charges against Bannon. All of these charges relate to a privately funded entity in which funds were raised from private individuals, mostly in smaller amounts, 5 and $10, in order to raise money for a border wall in two locations in Texas and in New Mexico. According to authorities, while none of this money was supposed to go to the individuals running this charitable entity, money instead was funneled to both the CEO of this company and to Mr. Bannon for various private and personal uses. And that's essentially what they've been charged with here. So the charges echo a federal case brought against Bannon two years ago, but he was pardoned by former President Trump before trial. Are there any double jeopardy concerns here? Double jeopardy essentially prevents an individual from being tried twice for the same offense. Now, in this case, there were federal charges that were brought, and ultimately, Mr. Bannon never went to trial because he was pardoned by President Trump. In that case, double jeopardy does not apply because the jury was never convened to weigh the federal fraud charges. That's why these state charges will withstand a challenge to double jeopardy, even though Mr. Bannon was already charged federally. Those charges, again, no jury was ever impaneled, which means the trial never began, and therefore double jeopardy did not attach. So the Manhattan District Attorney's Office has sort of made itself the guardian of presidential pardons, and New York even passed a law three years ago. Why do you think the Manhattan District Attorney has taken this on, not only Alvin Bragg, but before him, Cy Vance? Well, this indictment against Mr. Bannon is an example of the continuing efforts by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office to charge recipients of federal pardons by President Trump because the state prosecutors believe they broke state laws as well as federal laws. So another example of state prosecutors charging someone who was pardoned by President Trump 
was the case in 2018, where Trump's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, was convicted in federal court of financial fraud, but was later pardoned by President Trump. In March 2019, then Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance charged Paul Manafort with mortgage fraud and a dozen other state felonies. In that case, however, a judge ultimately ruled that those charges did violate the state's double jeopardy law because Mr. Manafort had stood for trial and had been convicted. And in that case, based upon the law as it existed in New York State at the time, double jeopardy prevented the Manhattan District Attorney's Office from bringing these charges, which were very similar to the federal charges that Mr. Manafort had already been convicted of. Three of Bannon's former partners in We Built the Wall were also charged. Two pleaded guilty and a third went to trial. That ended in a mistrial because the jury couldn't reach a unanimous verdict. In fact, and this is unusual, 11 of the jurors sent a note to the judge asking her to remove the 12th juror, who they said had spoken of a government witch hunt and refused to deliberate based on the evidence. What does that tell you about the upcoming Bannon trial? In this case, I think we can expect from Steve Bannon a politically charged defense. He's going to raise exactly those types of claims. This is a political witch hunt. He's going to try to channel a lot of the rhetoric we've seen from President Trump regarding his own legal issues and hope that they can get at least one member of the jury to simply reject the evidence and buy into the theory that this entire prosecution is simply politically motivated. What prosecutors will have to do during the voir dire, which is the part of the process where they pick jurors, is try to make sure that every juror that's selected is going to be able to impartially and fairly weigh the evidence and make a decision solely based on that. I think we can also expect the judge to curtail the defense To the extent they are trying to make this a political issue, I think we're going to see the judge limit that type of argument and force the defense to focus on the evidence that prosecutors are presenting at trial. That's certainly what happened in the trial where Bannon was convicted of contempt of Congress. Thanks so much, Bob. That's Robert Mintz of McCarter in English. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, 
OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.